and welcome to Celluloid Junkies We Just Watched. Uh, my name is Damien Heath and I'm joined by my diminutive co-host Luke Kane. How are you Luke? Very diminutive, how are you? I'm very good and um, we're joined by your even more diminutive sister Cassandra Kane. Hi! Hello. And this week we have a very special guest and in fact the impetus behind this episode, Angelo de Blasio. How are you, Angelo? Welcome to Celluloid Junkies. Hello, team. I'm happy to be here. So, Angelo, since you were the person who wanted us all to watch this film, why don't you tell us about the 1990 documentary directed by Jenny Livingston, Paris is Burning, and what made you want us to see it? I didn't know I was going to be put on the spot from the Um, get-go. It's obviously a lot to try to um, simplify into a couple of sentences, but essentially um, Paris is Burning is a documentary that was made in the late 80s and essentially sheds light on a group of um, what you would say queer people of colour who lived in uh, New York, predominantly in the Harlem area, um, and demonstrates the community that they've created around ball culture, which was essentially a place for them to come um, and essentially uh, do their version of weekly sports. But instead of playing sports, they were playing uh, dress up in a really um, important way to, I guess, their ability to escape and to dream of aspirations of things they never really felt they were going to be able to achieve. So you get to be a fly on the wall um, at a really important time of New York, which is the late 80s, um, where there was so much going on um, and looking at it through the, the queer lens. So as uh, Cassandra here and also she's joined by three queer people of no colour, um, Let's just go round and see what we all thought of it because I mean, three queer people of no colour, we're, we're the best target audience to talk about this film, aren't we? Luke, what did you think of it? Well, I, I, I think you're right that I'm probably, we're not probably not best placed to understand. I think that the people in this film uh, have had extreme experiences and they detail those experiences and they've had. Uh, frame of reference in life that we can't possibly understand these balls obviously existed as a way for them to build a family because so many of them uh, were cut off from their families or didn't grow up with families and they also did it to build a community and to build a society I think one thing that's interesting is that gay people have always found each other through history and maybe because they are over a fringe group fringe people um, it became necessary to kind of find ways and find channels to kind of get to each other. And so they get to they get together and they do these balls. And the, when it first started, I thought, what on earth is going on here? This is so strange. These people are just getting up and they're just sashaying about and, you know, throwing looks. And what even is that? And I've never been into um, like the drag culture or... Uh, you know, I've never been into into it as an art form or, or an area of interest. And so I've never really understood it and I don't really understand what the talent is for it. The other thing that I thought was curious is that really it was about them dressing up to a, a gender constraint, right? A gender construct. So they dress up to be a man or to be a woman. The goal is to be real, to be convincing as uh, 
a, a particular gender construct. And that's really interesting because that's fundamentally not what these people are. They're, they have all these aspirations for vogue and to be beautiful. There's this obsession with image. And yet these people are all beautiful, but they're not beautiful in conventional ways. And yet the balls are all about pretending to be conventional. So there's just a sort of a very kind of strange dichotomy in that. But as for the, as for the, I, I guess those are, those are the thoughts that I had watching the film. Mostly what I saw were people that were taking their pain and making art out of it. And I think that that's always beautiful. And it's very, very clear. It was so amazing, Ange, when you said this was all pre-Madonna's Vogue thing. So you can just see how influential this culture and this scene was. Uh, Cass? I agree, and I think I'm still digesting a lot of what what we saw. Um, for me, it sort of felt like it was very much about adaptation, like it was such a, a, a strong insight into how adaptable we are um, and how much we crave belonging and how we're able to create that. And, and you know, it was just qu- quite amazing to, as you say, look at this story through this community's eyes and, and, you know, just really get a sense of how, what, what we're capable of, you know, despite, despite, you know, what, how we're excluded or despite what expectations are, despite what we think is possible, how we create a world that we can really belong to. And I thought it was quite special in, in that regard, but also quite heartbreaking to when you, when you do notice those elements of, how how can we belong in this world and to to compete you know in these balls for realness um and and you know that being the aspiration like it's both inspiring but heartbreaking at the same time um yeah so i thought it was quite a great suggestion and yeah i really um there's a, there's a lot to take from it I thought um, I had a lot of the same feelings going in as Luke and I generally have, I guess it would be a little bit of an apathy towards drag, but also a not understanding it, not understanding the value behind it. I, I typically don't enjoy watching it. So I have this uh, hesitancy to go into a, a movie like this, but I found the documentary really enthralling and I really, really loved it. Um, there were some people in there who I found very interesting. There were likewise some people who I found quite insufferable. There were some things that they talked about that were very real, very open and honest. And there were some things I talk- that they talked about that I don't generally care to hear people talk about. So things about being rich and about being famous and, you know, those things that are just kind of generic human wants um, in your youth that uh, you know, I guess everybody has them to an extent, but um, I found the um, kind of difference between showing those young queer people who were after things like fame and fortune and, you know, even gender reassignment surgery, and then you had the older queens who were pretty happy just to be remembered by a few people and... Um, at this stage in my life, closing in on 40, I found a lot more uh, similarities between myself and them than I did between myself and the young people who were just starting out. My favourite scene, personally, was uh, 
I really enjoyed the discussions about gender, about um, not just using drag to be a performative thing, but to also be something that represented what somebody wanted to become. And so my favourite scene was on the beach when that girl says that she has, um, she's had her, I think she calls it transsexualism surgery. Um, but she, her line was, you know, I can close the closet door now. There's no more skeletons in the closet. And I really loved that. I really, that kind of taught me a few things. I think for me, what's was quite interesting about it and the reason why I'm so fascinated by it is how influential it is on modern queer culture or just popular culture in general. Obviously, we live in an age where, you know, queer media is now a multi-million dollar business. So you look at um, RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, which now exists across multiple countries. There's a the World of Wonder production company that produces them all. You look at things like Pose. You look at just the general influence of drag through modern sort of um, gay communities, whether it's through gay bars. And it's so interesting to be able to see how influential this film was to all of that. And I think maybe, Damien, when you start exploring the history, things like that, which maybe you wouldn't have had any interest in before. And I know I didn't until I actually moved to the US and saw those communities in action. Um, It was just incredibly fascinating. And then to actually review the dichotomy between what we discussed at the beginning, which was this idea of white privilege, which is a big part of the, the film's controversy because the film is directed by a white director who was a woman of privilege. And I think she was an NYU film grad. And essentially this is why the film is so controversial because essentially it was like this, you know, there is this discussion around all of these stories coming to light, but they couldn't have come to light without this white privileged woman going in and essentially exploiting this culture, which I think becomes a big discussion point when it comes to queer people of color being um, really marginalized and, and further impacted. Um, it's it's so interesting. You know, when you think about, I also thought what was really interesting is that I'm a big consumer of um, not like 1980s documentaries and film and culture. And a big part of that is the AIDS crisis. And what was so interesting is the AIDS crisis was running rampant in New York at the time. And yet they mention it very briefly, twice I think in the film, and each time it's not discussed within the context of the community. So for me, I thought it was really fascinating. And I don't know whether that was a conscious choice of the director to not discuss the AIDS crisis, because at that time, I think there was the controversy of Ronald Reagan not even mentioning the word AIDS, not a lot of the funding happening. But I just think it's so interesting to review the film and apply it to the modern context. Even today, you know, people of color, if you are if you are a gay black man in America, your rate, the chance of you catching HIV are 50 percent. So if you're gay, you have a 50% chance of catching HIV, which talks to all of the disparities that continue to exist. So while this film was created almost 40 years ago, the themes are so relevant when it comes to the way queer people are trying to exist today. And and yet they're making um, media conglomerates millions of dollars through this art form that exists. You can make a case either way that uh, mentioning or not mentioning AIDS and not focusing on it is either a good or bad thing. Um, Personally, I was conscious of that decision and disappointed that it wasn't in there a little bit more because I guess at the time, maybe that's something that 
was coming out in the media quite a bit, especially nineteen late nineteen eighties, and you do have people like Madonna who would go on to be quite vocal about it. But now watching it back thirty five years later, you do want to see those kind of contemporary analyses analyses of AIDS at the time in that community, and there was such good access to the community that I feel like watching it back then maybe it didn't have that same impact watching it today you're more conscious of it and it's something that's missing from the documentary the cast themselves when there's a really great vanity fair article called paris is burning is back which talks about the restoration of the film a couple of years ago and i think the cast were divided some of it some of them loved um the the attention they got and the other half just thought they were they were just exploited completely so it was just even interesting to see within that that context it was it was not a clear-cut sort of view well the film was directed by jenny livingston and she's actually the niece of alan j pakula so Mm. very very privileged white privileged background but i think there was a very deliberate choice to avoid a lot of the serious social issues that affect these people. I mean, there were certainly allusions to prostitution and then that being, you know, a rampant thing through the transvestite community. And that isn't really touched on. She's a showgirl. Showgirl, She's a showgirl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I think what she wanted to do was show the balls and really get across the energy and the exuberance of the balls. And, and in, in that way, the film isn't exploitative at all because these people are shown doing what they love and they are in control of their brand and their narrative when they when they go on their walks so i mean it's it's not doing what a movie like streetwise does where it really kind of penetrates the real dark issues and underbelly of these people's lives it's it's looking at a fringe society but from a very very specific angle yeah it doesn't feel like it judges the people in in who in the cast like it doesn't feel like the way that it tells their story the questions you know that that are posed to them um the way it i guess illustrates you know their experience it doesn't feel ever like it is making a judgment on their decisions or um or their hopes, you know, and, and it very much, I think, validates and, and, you know, sees that as a valid perspective and a valid desire for their lives. That was certainly how it hit me anyway. How were you impacted by, uh, uh, you know, let's talk quickly about Streetwise. We've done an episode on that. Um, Angelo, I remember you said that you thought Paris is Burning is the best documentary you've ever seen um, and then that you heard us say when we released our episode on Streetwise that we thought Streetwise was was the best documentary we've ever seen or at least right up there and um, there's a scene in Streetwise <clears throat> where there's a funeral there's a death there's a funeral which happened after the main filming but they put it in the movie and there's a scene in Paris is Burning where there's a death and they feel very different different focal points I think yeah for co- obvious reasons right I don't think Paris is Burning it has the same gut-wrenching impact, but we don't get to know her as well as we do um, the boy that dies in Streetwise. Dwayne. Dwayne, yeah, Dwayne, yeah, that's right. Do you think we get to know anybody that well? Uh, you know, I was thinking about, really, the, the film is a beautiful document for the exuberance of 
um, excitement of possibility that you feel when you're young. What was so interesting about all the characters is that they were so young and they knew exactly who they were and what they wanted. Mm. So much of the documentary was just about people talking about what they wanted. And we meet so many people who are young and are directionless who, or who, who don't know what they want. And so there is something really comforting and wonderful about watching these young people who know what they want and what they want is so unconventional, not easily obtained. There's a million obstacles standing in their way and yet they are clear about what they want and they go for it and they get it. And so even though the film is dealing with people that could be so sad, they, they're not showing that way. Oh, Angie's gone. Angie's gone. I was thinking about that too um, in that it's quite unusual, I think, in lots of other communities for people to be so liberated in how they describe what they want and brave about how they describe what they want. I think that I I was reflecting on that and thought, gosh, you don't see that so much. Often people are quite restrained about voicing things they might want that seem too out there or unattainable or difficult or or at the sort of hope that some people might look down on or say that's not a cultured or sophisticated aspiration. Whereas I did find in this documentary, as you say, like that they were very upfront and direct and sure. And, um, there, there's a courage in that, I think. Um, and yeah. And, and to what extent is that developed through, um, I guess what they've had to withstand or, you know, what's been difficult in their lives. Yeah. I was especially conscious of that when they were interviewing that 13 and 15 year old boy and they were just talking so openly about being gay. And I, I just thought I was so not ready to utter those words at that age. It's incredible. Mm. Amazing. And, and, you know, it must just be because like you say, they're, maybe they grow up and they don't feel that weight of the world or the pressure of the world in the same way. Um, maybe they're not as scared of it as people that have safer upbringings are, you know, they don't, they don't learn that, that social conditioning to toe the line and to factor in expectations of others. Um, what did you think about watching it and seeing some of the innovations that were there? And I mean, obviously one of them is voguing. Um, but also, I mean, that just speaks in general to kind of the pioneering, elements of gay culture in especially in the arts i kept thinking this is sort of like a weird kind of organic project runway but unstructured and it sort of just happened kind of naturally and 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 the designers were wearing their own designs that's sort of how it struck me initially but again i don't I, I don't there's nothing i saw in the documentary where i went wow that's really impressive or really amazing talent in terms of what they did who they were what they said there was a lot of art and a lot of philosophy and a lot of beauty and insight there but the actual balls themselves and the dressing up i I don't have any kind of response to that really didn't you find it sad when they were talking about i think one of the categories was executive realness or business realness and they were just saying this isn't possible to dress up in a suit and go work an office job but this is what I mean about how they wanted, they used the balls to essentially try to kind of put up a, a, a accepted gender construct, you know, the business executive man who looks straight. It's just interesting that that's the aspir- aspiration. 
the aspiration is not to be more themselves, but to kind of hide themselves behind, and yet they're not hiding at all. It's it's all very strangely contradictory. It really goes back to the norms that I think we all have grown up with. Maybe not the Gen Zs that are growing up now, but even I think it was, I think it was a Venus extra- extravaganza who said, oh, I just want to go move out to the suburbs. I want to have a husband. Um, I want to have a family and live what sounds like a really boring life because that's something that they never had the opportunity to have. That was what really struck me as being really, really gut-wrenching is they just wanted to be like everyone else yeah. despite the all the talk around um money and fame and beauty that's that's that wasn't the crux of it the crux of it is just you know wanting wanting what we all think that we're supposed to be born with and yet all of their conversations were so image focused and so much of what they talk about and how they feel about themselves is related to their image and yet you're right when it boiled down to it image wasn't really the what they wanted it wasn't where they wanted to end up it was just how they wanted to get there yeah they talk about the mothers of the house and taking in the kids and giving them everything that their families had never given them i think that's Mm. what really makes this this story so beautiful back to your your question damien around um you know was there anything innovative i just kept on thinking this is just another example of um, really hardworking people who do the work. And I guess we see this in the arts all the time. The people behind the scenes, the producers, the costume designers, going back to the controversy at the Oscars of robbing those people of their opportunities. It was just really sad to see that, you know, again, these white privileged people come in, you know, they, they steal you know, the ideas and they're the ones that have all the glory. Most people probably wouldn't know what voguing is outside of a Madonna song. And as we saw in that film, by the time the film ends, this is, that's even a year before Madonna puts her voguing out. And it almost felt like at that point, you know, they'd done already so much. So it was just so, so interesting just to see, like in many artists case, you know, it's, it's not what we think at all in terms of history. There's sort of an awful irony in it, right? Because they're all talking about how, oh, we've invented this and we want to bring this out into the world and I want to be on top of it. I want to be the face of it. And then, of course, it does get co-opted by white people. I assume that none of these people, none of the inventors of this incredibly lucrative commodity of all this stuff, that none of them actually benefited from it financially or were credited for it financially. They, they, the story was is that it, the film, it gets released. They finished, they pro- finished producing it in 89 it gets released in 91 and makes four million dollars and then they basically take fifty five thousand dollars of that profit and they hand it out to the cast based on screen time um and that's the way that's the way you know they get credited goodness geez okay uh angelo willie willie ninja i really liked in the movie yeah uh in the in the documentary it's i've just found out he was in the videos for All Right and Escapade. <laughs> yeah. He was probably the, the, the most, um, the one who probably had the most uh, normal sense of a career after through it. But I think, again, Escapade and All Right were um, made before Paris is Burning came out. And I think uh, maybe just before Vogue, because I think it's a 1989 album that, that he um, performs on. So, you know, he goes and has a legitimate career before... Um, yeah you know, Paris is Burning comes out, which is lovely. He was the most strategic and calculated in how he was using the balls. For him, it was, I think, 
as much about self-advancement as it was self-actualization. Whereas for a lot of them, it was all just about being on that stage and getting that applause, being addicted to that high, as she said. That was for me the innovation, seeing him, you know, do those dance moves almost like a ninja. You know what I mean? Like there was real art form, whereas the rest is almost like fun and performing. No, he was great. He was really great to watch. And do you have a favorite character, favorite person that was featured? I loved Dorian. I loved, I I thought she was a poet. Mm -hmm. With a great backstory. And she's your favorite, Angelo? Uh, No, I think my favorite is probably one that didn't get any screen time at all, really, which was Angie Extravaganza, which is the mother of the house. Mm. I mean, the house of Extravaganza still um, exists today. And I just, there was just something so gentle and kind about her, especially as she she was talking about Venus's death. Mm. Um, uh, You know, she, she, she's probably my favorite because you can see that legacy come to life in terms of, you know, the, the work she did taking care of those kids. And she was diagnosed with AIDS a year after the film came out and died three years after the film came out. At the, she was 28 when she passed away. So she was really, she was 22, 23 during the filming of the documentary and she was the house mother. Yeah, but as you saw the, at the beginning of the film was a th- those 13 and 14 year old kids on the street. Mm. You know, by the time you get to 23, you probably feel like you've lived a lifetime. That's right. I mean, it's it's really still the story of the gay world today, isn't it? You're ancient when you hit 25. <laughs> Cass, do you have any favourites? Oh, mine was Dorian too. Okay. Just, yeah, love the wisdom coming through there. I really liked Willie and Octavia. Cass, can you explain the difference between shade and reading? No, I cannot. <laughs> it all felt like shade to me. Reading yeah. is when you tell someone why they're shit. Shade is when you show them that they're shit without telling them, I think. <laughs> yeah. Reading is very much, I think, point, pointing out the obvious um, in, a, in a snarky way, um, whereas shade is being very, um, you know, trying to be a little coy about it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Luke, actually, you mopped a, a cat from Kmart recently, didn't you? I did mop a cat. <laughs> it was... It was it was half accidental and half just laziness. That was it. Almost sounds like the explanation. Yeah, thank you for sharing that on our show. Hopefully Saypol aren't listening. Well, look, you do the editing, so if it stays in there, it's your choice. Mm, I think I'll do it. I'll live on the edge. Um, okay, let's give a star rating. Um, Luke, your star rating. Well, I've, I, you know, I've just... just met this movie so i'm gonna go four and a half but i think it probably will be one that i'll revisit and it'll ultimately go to five well i'm exactly the same as you and for the exact same reasons cass i actually find it hard to rate i feel like it putting a rating is a little i don't know somehow just doesn't feel right for for this film i obviously really loved it and yeah um well you can't back out you need we need a star uh, rating we need to well, quantify I have to give this. it five then <laughs> And uh, Angelo, I think we know what you're going to say. Well, I'm going to take Cass's um, lead and say I'm not going to give it a star rating, but I'll say if I did, it would be the same as Streetwise. So it's Streetwise's star rating, um, whatever that may be. Okay, well, that's five stars, so <laughs> there we go. And I, and I said Streetwise crawled, so Paris is Burning can, you know, could, could run. Mm-hmm. Um, they're definitely um, a pigeon pair, and I'd recommend them to anyone who, you know, wants a good documentary about, I guess, a unique time in America's history. 
Yeah, it's so great, Ange. Thanks for recommending it and for coming on and talking about it on the show as well. One thing that I was just found remarkable was how good this film looked. Like, there are street shots in this movie where everybody is in focus, full colour. Uh, there's just no specs on the film. There's nothing. So the Criterion have done such an amazing job restoring it. I'm not sure what kind of quality it was in before because I haven't seen any other print of it. But it looked... I mean, Streetwise looks good on the Criterion, but Paris is Burning looks pretty much amazing. It looks like you're actually on the street. And this is essentially just like a, I don't know, Streetwise on Prozac or something. You know, like it's it's sort of got the same rustic visual palette and it's about um, a vulnerable group of people, but sort of inverted so that you kind of can appreciate a lot more of the, the joy of living. Mm. Well, thank you, Luke. Thank you, Cass. And thank you, Angelo. Um, it's been great. Uh, we just watched Paris is Burning and you should too. Thanks, guys. Thank you.